A couple of things I want to straighten out. Mike mentioned this morning that he was a great-grandfather, as if I'm not. And uh, I am a great-grandfather. I want to make that very clear. I have 10 grandchildren, and I'm a great guy. So that'll settle that. That, <laughs> ma that makes me a great-grandfather. Also, I want to clarify, uh, some guys have asked me about... Uh, my USBs. I've, there's some out there if you're interested in it. Actually, a book if you want to get something for your wife. I brought just a handful of my wife's book and I'm taking home a present. But it uh, just came out and it's pretty well sold out already. So uh, it's a great little book, I think, obviously. But the, uh, uh, there's USB drives out there and you look, you look by and you don't know what they are. And it's a new kind of it. Same technology. It's USB drive. It's, it looks like a little credit card, but it opens up and it just goes into the USB is what it is, and it's, uh, one of them has uh, 950 messages on it, uh, my, whole, my whole Through the Bible thing in a series that we've done on marriage. My wife and I, a couple of marriage conferences. My wife has some out there of about 20 women in the Bible characters, and, I, and I've got a number of them on character studies. So anyway, if you're interested, they're there. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I've been asked to kind of close this thing out. Uh, and First uh, Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verse 58, and then we're going to kind of backtrack. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. Lord, I pray that you have spoken things to our heart and that we have taken them. Lord, that we really do want to run that race. We want it with all of our heart, Lord. We pray that we won't be like the man in your word that said he beheld himself in a mirror, and then when he walked away, he forgot what manner of man he saw. Lord, we make some decisions today, and Lord, we pray that these decisions would be followed up when we walk out of here, when we go home, tomorrow, when we get up. Lord, as we just think about our lives, our families, our marriage, even Lord has just had a little exhortation on our children. Lord, one day when so many times we're young and we think they'll be okay, and yet Lord, the older you get, you look and you realize your children, your grandchildren are really your most precious asset. Lord, that we would truly invest in them in any and every way that their lives, that they grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and we'd want to protect their hearts and truly be one that we could stand before you and say, Lord, we watched over them with all of our heart. You gave them to us. You entrusted us with them. And Lord, we pray we were faithful. So Lord, we ask that you would just, all the things of the day, that now as we share and prepare our hearts for communion, that you would pull these last thoughts together. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, we, it has been rehearsed, uh, already and virtually in every one of the studies as I've listened to them in one way or another about Corinth and what kind of a city it was. It was a very, very important city as well within Greece. It was a Roman province as already been told. And it was about the most important or the central route uh, that went from east to west. And thus it was one of the great cities in all of the Roman Empire. And it was also though a city that was very noted for its commerce, its culture, its travel. And much of it was like a big business city, and yet it was also a very, very corrupt, sensuous city, almost like a Las Vegas, uh, New York combined, you know, or something, where it's people that were there, there were trafficking, trafficking in and through, and, and a great sense of immorality and corruption within the city. Headquarters, essentially, there are the worship of Venus, a temple there that boasted of having a thousand prostitutes. Something that a lot of times we look at, it's interesting on how in the Old Testament, or in the, I mean in the old times, in the old cultures, they actually deified immorality. It was something there that we maybe just look at worshiping sex. And when most of us look at pornography as pornography. Hey, it's, we haven't so much as though we idolize it the same and maybe are, are followed of it and it has the same power over us, but we don't really call pornography a religion uh, there uh, like they actually did then. It was, but it was just pornography. You go look and you look in these temples and things that they've come out of these many breasted little statues that they had. They didn't have videos and, and uh, magazines and things. And so they made uh, all these little idols and they were just basically their version of pornography at the time. But one of the things that they did that was quite interesting is, is that uh, uh, Aphrodite or Venus, they were the, the, or Venus, they were the, god or the goddesses of fertility. 
And one of the things that say somebody was starting a business or somebody had just gone out and they had prepared a field, they had just plowed it and seeded it and they wanted to bring forth a great harvest and they wanted it to be a fertile business. They wanted it to be a fertile field. They wanted whatever their enterprise that they had poured their energy into, they would go in and uh, there get a t uh, one of the prostitutes to worship Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility, and with the desire that this act of fertility there with, uh, it, with the prostitute would be turned into fertility in your endeavors. And uh, uh, quite an interesting thing, we haven't quite done that, but at the same time, when you look at what we have done in making all of these things uh, that we worship so much into forms of worship that are just simply human beings in their fallen nature at their height of fallen nature in all their glory that they would seem it to be. But here is Paul, sees this church that's just been highly distracted. Their identity, who they are, what they were really all about as a Christian. The things that they were dealing with when you would just kind of do, and I want to do just a quick flyby, I guess, through the book because some of us, maybe you've been around some difficult churches. Yeah, uh, maybe in your life before. And one of the things that I do love so much about the, the work that God has given to us in the Calvaries is there, most of the time with an overwhelming percentage of them, people come, they're not being ripped off, conned off, they're not being deceived, they're not getting bad doctrine, they're not political churches so much as they're just churches that are in the Word of God. We're living lives, seeking to live righteously and before God to, to glory in Him and and uh, there's a wonderful health and blessing to them. But some of you maybe you're, you've been exposed to other churches and other things to where you maybe sometimes felt you went to a bad church or a difficult church. Well, let me tell you, uh, Corinth. I don't think any of us have ever been to a church like Corinth. And uh, when you would go and take a look at this church, I mean, Paul, he mentions, and just to do a little flyover, there was contentions among them. And, you know, some of you in verse, he says in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For it's declared that concerning you, my brethren, those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say that each of you, he says, well, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? But Paul there, he, again, they were, as, as mentioned this morning, they lived in a world that kind of deified human beings. They picked out who were their great stars in them and who were the great leaders of the, uh, the Greek world. And then they just kind of shifted that same thought when they came there into the body of Christ. They, they picked out people, heroes. Oh, Paul, nobody preaches like Barnabas. That guy is, he, he was, he's the eloquent preacher. Ah, but Paul, but Peter, he's a leader. He's a dynamic guy. You know, or I'll tell you that Paul is so intellectual. He is so intelligent. This guy, he can just figure anything out. He just has a depth, you know. I mean, they could all pick out why they chose somebody. But fundamentally, Paul, he's just looking at them. And he said, what a distraction this is. And even then some of you say, oh, I'm not of any of them. I'm of Christ. But even then, he says, the hypocrisy of it, there's so often of somebody just supposedly rising above others, but at the same time can be much the same. He looked at them in chapter 3 and verse 1, and he says, you know, you're babes, uh, you know, of them. And he says, uh, and I, brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, car, uh, unto carnal as, as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. And until now, you were not able to receive it. Even now, you're still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Here Paul looks at them, and if you could imagine, how would you like to have gone to a church that had the likes of Paul planting it or around it, Peter, Cephas, Barnabas. I mean, some, you know, I mean, to have so many, some of these great, I mean, incredible, you know, apostles and preachers there in the first century and to be able to sat at their feet. And you would think, oh, they, if any, how could you not be around somebody like them and not be transformed? And uh, interesting, the gentleman that was making the announcement about the school, we go subject ourselves, you know, to 40, 80, 100 hours of one world and then think a few hours will overdo it. Overdo it. Well, Corinth was something, it, it was like that for, for the, the church. On one hand, you could have great ministry going on at one point or another, and here is some preaching, but at the same time, still living in Corinth, in, in, in Corinth still carnal. You are babes. I wish I could feed you. I wish you could get into the distinct, strong study of the Word of God. You can't. You're still babes. And they had moral problems, as uh, Mike pointed out during his time in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. 
commonly that there is fornication among you. Of such fornication, there's not even named among the Gentiles that a man is, you know, should have his father's wife. Are you puffed up uh, and have rather have mourned and uh, he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? He looks at them and he says, here, you, you just, within the, the church, you've got a man there uh, sleeping there with his father's wife, presumed there to be his mother-in-law uh, or as, uh, his stepmother, you know, but the way it is rather than his mother. But at the same time, there, I mean, how, how wicked, how do, you, how do you sit, how do you absorb and not do something with that and watch you go on? He says in verse 11, he says, now I have written unto you in chapter 5, not to keep company with a man who is called a brother, be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or railer, or drunkard, or extorter, or an, or an extorter, uh, extortioner, as, as of what's the one not to eat. Therefore put away from among you that wicked person. You know, there's two things that, that oftentimes we as Christians have a very difficult time dividing between the two. One is ministry, the other is fellowship. I was one of those guys, I came to Christ when I was a junior in college, and I really didn't know Christians before I became one. I mean, I knew a lot of Christians, I suppose, because everybody felt like we're American, and I've got a mother, I eat apple pie, I'm, I'm a Christian, you know, or something. But uh, I didn't know anybody that were really walking with God, or you quoted the Bible, or prayed, or did anything. And, uh, all, and I lived in one house from all the way through education, and here, all of my friends. They were all partiers, they're all in the world, and, and uh, that's where... You know, where I was when I got saved. Well, I started going to church, but yet at the same time, fraternity life, party life, and I'd go back and forth. And I didn't realize the difference, you know, because, you know uh, between ministry and fellowship. Here, Paul is essentially saying you don't fellowship. Not that you do not minister to all of these people, but, if you, but uh, you don't fellowship with them. The word fellowship means to share in common. And what happened to me when I had the struggle going back and forth and back and forth when I first came to Christ because not knowing any Christians and all the friends around me in the fraternity world, the fraternity house, the party and all of that, that I, they were my best friends. And, uh, and then when I would go to church, to tell you the truth, I didn't really care for church people very much. And in fact, you know, when you go to church, you know, I mean, look, I mean, we're, we're different. We're very, very different. In the, in the school world, in your fraternity world, your party world, everybody's like you. When you rush a fraternity, you all dress the same, walk the same, wear the same stuff. You all, they have this rush week where you go back and forth, where they decide, are you really one of us? Can you fit in? Do you talk like us, walk like us, think like us, have the value system we do? Will you fit in? And, and so everybody, you're all like yourself. And oftentimes, you know, there's all these clubs and other things we're a part of in that whole world. But you come to church, we're all different. And they, you know, look around. <laughs> You're weird. But I mean, the uh, and, and and we're very under what what not very very different people, and and trying to to fit in. I can just remember going to church and saying, you know, in fact, one time I actually remember saying this. I was you know, going back and forth looking at church. They're they're just odd. They're different. The Bible says we're peculiar people, but I'm looking at them. I'm thinking, Lord, I want you to know, I I really love you, but I do not like your friends. You know, they, they were just odd to me, you know, at that time of insecurity, because how do you, I didn't have any much in common with them, and I, because I wasn't strong in the Lord, I didn't even have a spiritual life. But I had a lot in common with them, so I'd keep on going back, sharing what we did have in common. They didn't have Christ, so therefore, what did I share with them? Well, what we had in common, what was that before anything outside of, I had outside of Christ? And it took me a while to realize, if I'm going to go on fellowshipping, with unbelief. I'm going to go on eating with them, hanging out, spending time. Now, it's another thing to ministry. Fellowship, you're sharing what you have in common. Ministry is where you're being poured out. You, one is giving, one is receiving. One is there you're, 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 when you're ministering. You're not there to take back from them. And, you know, and, uh, and, and here, one of the things happened, finally, when I got this in, in good shape, I was over the period of time to be able to go back to a lot of fraternity guys that were friends that I cared a lot for, but to minister to them, not to fellowship with them. And then the fellowship one day happened when we then, when some came to Christ and then we had fellowship in common, but they didn't know this. They did. They just thought they could go on. You know, and many of us, I don't, not knowing you, I don't know anything about you. That's one of the things I like about coming to speak at some place where they don't know me and I don't know them. You know, Ray would get up here and he says something and some of you are thinking he's staring right at me. Look at him, he knows. He knows I'm a this guy. And then, you know, he mentioned something about, you know, 
loving sports or loving drinking or loving smoking or something. And Arian, he's staring at me. He caught, he smelt my breath. Ah, oh, man, I tried to, I had, I had all the, I had a box of Altoids. Oh, man, I got caught. You know, or something. I look at you, I don't know, <laughs> you know, what you are, but I look at you and I know you're a sinner, a dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinner. So I don't mind looking at you that way. I just don't know the specifics. But here, that when we, when we, so I can come in and I'm fine. But I, but, but, but when you go, you go to, to share and minister. And then when you find somebody is in Christ, now you fellowship. And because until I got that down, I didn't grow. I went back to work. I went back to some fraternity. I went back to everything else and continued, got pulled back into it. Maybe some of you for years, you know, the guys at work, the people around, the stuff you're involved in, they pull you back, keep you back. And until something happens within you, where Jesus Christ becomes more important to you than anything in anybody. And that's what Jesus said, if any man come after me, now that's any man, woman, boy, girl, any century, generation, kindred, tribe, or tongue, if anybody come after me and hate, not his mother, father, wife, children, his own life, yea, he is not worthy of me. Now obviously Jesus never taught us to hate anybody, but if there is any relationship in your life that has greater impact on you than Jesus Christ, you hate the relationship. How did I let this person become more valuable, more influential in my life than God? At that point, you, you go back and examine it. If there is anybody in your heart, in your life, that you're looking at, that impacts you, that has more control over your thoughts, your behavior, uh, than, uh, than, than the Lord himself, flee it. Just whatever you got to do to get free of it. They couldn't do that in Corinth. Next thing you know, we find him as well. They're suing each other in court. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go before the unrighteous, not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world and the world will be judged by you? Uh, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Here you've got people. They're coming to church and they're suing each other. You know, instead of coming before the elders, they've got a disagreement. They're going before the leadership. These are godly men. They love us both. They love us all. There's something there. They love righteousness. Instead of going to a court or something outside, you're just going to the ungodly people, that, that, that uh, just worldly people. Go to people that have the word there. And here, you know, they're, they're crazy, suing each other. They're having trouble in their spiritual lives of keeping their bodies pure in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be uh, brought under any uh, power of any. Foods for the stomach, the stomach for foods, but God will destroy uh, both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And both God has raised up the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Do you know not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make it a member of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined uh, to a harlot is uh, as one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For we are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and not in your spirit, which are God's. Here he looks here and he says, now here you've given your life to Christ. You've received him. You're part of the body of Christ. And now you are taking your body. And here they're living in a world where, you know, sexual immorality, it was so prevalent. It was no big deal. People just did it all the time. Good people, married people, family people. It was not uncommon for somebody to have a wife and then have a mistress and have it be public. It was not, you know, there, it was a society of which marriage had nothing sacred at all about it. We still have a certain degree of sacredness about it, but they had none. And so here it was, now they're coming to Christ, going to church, but still a mistress, still, you know, going out or picking up, you know, one of these temple prostitutes, you know, and, and having sex with them. Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You go join your body to a harlot. Two should become one. You just married that woman. The two have become one. You know, that when somebody now, the word, you know, in terms of when somebody consummates a marriage, because of the, the relationship, it's two bodies became one. As far as the Bible is concerned, when somebody has sexual relationships, they marry the woman. That's what marriage means, a union. They've united themselves. 
Now, maybe somebody goes out and they pick up a prostitute or a secretary or some salesperson out here or whatever just on a fling, and they think, hey, I don't know their name, address, phone number, future. They probably lied their name to me anyway. And, uh, or whatever, Republican, Democrat, Ku Klux Klan member, I don't know, I don't really care, you know, or whatever. I don't really care anything about them. I just know what I want from them. Hey, as far as God's concerned, you just married her. You just married her. Oh, you didn't go down to the court and fill out a divorce paper. You didn't, you didn't do any legal work. It was just a fling. You didn't care a thing about it. God looks. You just united her, yourself with her. And here when somebody looks and realizes that the very core and identity of human history, the sanctity of the marriage, when that is something that's held in low regard, the family, the core of the family of society, he's looking at this thing. That is to be so incredibly sacred. And of course, our country has thrown that out completely. I saw an article yesterday that now Bruce Jenner, he's now legally uh, Caitlin, and he now has, uh, you know, in all the legal documents, he is now a, a woman, and, uh, or she is now a woman, or a, whatever it is, you know, but I mean, Social Security, driver's license can now go down and get all this, and, uh, but I'll tell you, I mean, as far as the DNA is concerned, you can do whatever you want to. You take that blood type and you put that in any lab in the world, and they'll say it came from a man. And they can't change that. And uh, we, we're, we're throwing out everything you can in the culture, but when we sit there and, uh, and are letting this happen, here Paul looks here and he says, here within the church, all right, Corinth does this, not you. You don't think a thing about it. Divorce, tragically, it was rampant. Uh, the, you know, there, you're with, uh, within it. And here is in chapter seven, you know, Paul says, you know, we, you know there, I mean, you know, people are going, coming to church, getting saved, their maid isn't saved. And so they're deciding, hey, you know, here's this wonderful Christian woman at church and my wife's not saved or my husband's not saved. And, uh, and here, this is happening. So they're getting divorced and they're marrying uh, somebody there in church. And Paul has to say, let not the wife depart from her husband. You don't walk away from a marriage. For what knowest thou, O woman, whether thou shalt save thy husband or what knowest thou, husband, whether thou shalt save thy wife. There that God looks at you and he says, you pray and you, you hold that sanctity and you love and you minister. And it ought to be that if that person was attracted to you in the first place when you were a lost person, when they see the light in the life, the attraction ought to be much greater. Give it time, give it prayer, don't give up on this. And, but here they're, you know, marriage is broken down, family is broken down, morality is broken down. They're taking each other to court. They're picking who is, who's their stars. They're arguing, infighting over diets. And uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, now concerning things offered to idols. And then, you know, that was already taught on and shared well. You know, the things between, you know, and stumbling somebody. How important it is that we just look and, and, and people become more valuable to us than any luxury, any pleasure, any comfort. That the thought, you know, it's interesting because as Ray was sharing his testimony about smoking, I'm one of those guys when I came to Christ, I, done, I was a fraternity guy, I was a partier and drinking and smoking, I smoked a couple packs of cigarettes a day and uh, I had a very same type of experience. Here I'm really starting to grow and wanting to share my faith and I'm at work, I worked at Bank of America and part-time job in college and there's a fellow named Gene Rayleigh who was a foul guy and things. And one day I thought, this is crazy. We're working a lot and close to each other. And I started sharing Christ with him. And something's happening within my life. And he looked at me and he says, what are you talking about? I said, I'm a Christian. And he said, what? I said, I'm a Christian. He said, hey, look, I, 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 I'm no Christian, but I know a Christian. I was around church as a kid. And he says, Christians don't smoke. People that smoke are going to hell. I know this, I've been to church. And I, so I said, well, what was it? Well, he ended up, he went to a Pentecostal holiness where you only smoke when nobody can see you. Yeah, you know, sort of a thing, but you know, this type of a thing, but he's looking there and, uh, and, he's, uh, and he says, you're, you, you don't smoke, you're not a Christian. I said, I am too. I'm not, we had this huge argument whether or not I was a Christian and for the first time, I kind of felt bad because I, everybody in my family was saved and my brother and I were about the same size, he's a little older, but uh, I, sometimes we'd borrow each other's clothes and, I'd, and one time he had to come and he said, Don, I'm sorry, I can't, I, I don't want you borrowing my sport coats anymore. I said, what do you mean? Let's use mine. He said, I know, but when you were mine, I go to church and they're all smoky and everybody thinks I've been smoking and I don't think it's a good way. No, I, was, I didn't like your stupid 
coat anyway, you know, or whatever. I'd blow everything else off when they'd probably talk to me. But for the first time, I had something happen where here there was somebody I really cared about, and he blew me off. There because of something within my life that, that, that stumbled him. And there I began to realize that, that to me, like Paul says, to avoid the appearance of evil. The Bible doesn't just simply say avoid evil. And, but it says to avoid the appearance of evil. And if there are things that, that you look at that are destroying society, it's things that, are, that, that a lot of people in society look at, they're a stumbling block. Not to, not to argue, is it legal, is it right, is it acceptable? Because by the way, if, if it's merely legal, I mean, why not, if, you know, you guys need to open up a uh, marijuana bar here, you know, or something, and uh, help people get rid of some of their pain. You know, I mean, that's all legal. Or is it here legal here? Is here? Oh, well, you got to go to, where is it, Nevada? Colorado. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just don't drive with anybody that's smoking. <laughs> you know, but the, uh, uh, they're, they're certainly learning it the hard way. But the point is, is that when somebody there, I mean, you got, and he talks about these wealthy people, you're going to a thing and they have a well feast and they bring in all this big spread and there's somebody poor over here that doesn't have anything. And here, you know, you come in and you're flaunting your wealth and what you've got there. And, 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 uh, and I mean, what a pathetic church. In chapter 9, they're arguing uh, the payment, uh, the people that served in ministry. Uh, you know, how much it should be or what it should be. And Paul says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, does it add, uh, you know, he who plants a vineyard, doesn't it, does he not eat of the fruit? He who tends the flock, does he not drink of the, uh, the milk of the flock? And here he's simply saying there, I mean, Moses said, don't muzzle the ox. He says, yeah, there's, there's a affair, you know, helping to support somebody doing something. If they're serving the body of Christ, if their life has been set aside for this, that's what it's to be. They're arguing over that. In chapter 11, at communion, there at the communion meal, and he said, there is, you know, some people, they're, they're coming again with much food. Some are hungry. Others are coming and they're getting drunk at communion. Here instead, you know, they find just another opportunity. He says in verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For eating, uh, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. Uh, what, do you not have houses to drink and eat in? Or do you not despise the church? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? This I say unto you, you shall not be praised. I do not praise you. In chapter 12, they're arguing over who is the most spiritual. What are the greatest gifts? What are the least gifts? You know, there, and, uh, and he looks there and he says, you know, he says, there's a body. He says, there's one, and everybody is a member of the body. And every member of the body is necessary. He gives a great illustration on one part of the body, you know, the hand saying, because I'm not the, the eyes or I'm not of the body. Or the foot saying, you know, to the hand, you know, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body. And, you know, you, you're, but, but every member is important. You know, your foot, if it could think for itself, it probably would, would not like you very much. I mean, I, you know, if, if the foot would say, what, what is wrong with me? What do you hate about me? You know, here, you know, you no sooner wake up and the very thing you do is you stick a sock on me. You cover me up. Are you ashamed of me? You know, anybody see me? And then after that, you put the full weight of your body, every other shift on me, and then on the other me. Me, 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 back and forth, crushing me. And then I have to sit there and eat what you eat, and you can't even carry the weight. You're adding more weight to it, and I have to carry that weight. When are you going to leave me alone? You're killing me. You're killing my feet, you know. And I wish I was another member of the body. And, you know, and there, there's two great sins that happen, and, and most people fall into one or the other instead of a balance. And that is somebody thinking they're more important, you know, because even then when you've got one member of the body there that, uh, you know, that thinks, you know, that, that, it's, that it's more or less. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, therefore it's not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? I mean, now, you know, the ear, my ear sits over here, hangs on the side of my head. It's a lot better off than the foot, you know, in a thing. And, uh, you know, but the, uh, the, the ear can say, hey, I, I, I listen to everything that happens. I draw it all in. Somebody says hello to you. I'm the one that tells the brain where the voice came from. I'm the one that communicates, helps everybody turn over. Oh, the voice came from here. You know, and, uh, and yet at the same time, it looks over at the eye. Does it look to the ear and say, oh, thank you. You directed the body to hear me. No, it looks into the eye. 
It stares at the eye. Hey, no, I'm over here, over here. Hello, hello. You're staring at the eye. The eye didn't find you. I found you. But on how you can feel you're so close to being somebody, but you're not there. Or else somebody else, you know, uh, you know, they, they think that they're because they're not the hand, I'm not of the body. Or, but only, or, or else somebody can think, well, I'm more important. I have no need of thee. A number part of the body, you know, can say, hey, I don't really need that part of the body. I'm the most important. And with most people, you're one or the other. Either you come in here, well, I'm, I'm not important. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not like anybody else. Oh, they want me to fill a pew. They want me to sit here. They want me to maybe a little, but I'm not very important. Or else others walk in, I'm important. Hello, 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 I'm here. A little attention, please. You know, or something, there's just something in nature. Rather than realizing your body, the only part when there is, is something grabbing for attention, it's grabbing for attention because something's wrong with it. Something's not working I've, you know, I'm one of these guys, I'm wearing hearing aids. I don't hear well. I, I've lost an eye at a stroke years ago. I, uh, I've had a hip replaced. I've had a, lost a lung. And uh, I've got all these body parts that are just, my, uh, my wife wants to put on my tomb, may he rest in pieces. I'm just dying a little bit <laughs> here and there as these, over the years things go. And one of the things, I've got a, a, an ankle that's given me all sorts of trouble and things, and I, 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 I take ibuprofen and stuff for it. But towards the end of the day and standing all day right now, it's, it's, it's letting me know, would you hurry up, hurry up, finish up the stupid message. That's all my foot is saying to me. You know, so, and I, the other foot's happy. It's not saying a word, no problem. There with it. But the one that usually is crying out, the one is, is, the, the, is hurting. The one there, the, the part of your body, there that's seeking attention is because something's hurting within it. Then they'd also forgotten there in chapter 13, Paul says, love is the greatest thing. You've got all these things, you've got deep problems because love isn't there. You forgot it. Chapter 14, they're talking about services and how they're long and confusing displays of spiritual gifts. People come in, they think you're crazy. And, uh, but here is Paul is looking at this, what a crazy church. What, I mean, some of you maybe been in difficult churches in your life, but to think of a church having all of these. Some of you maybe been around, they've had a couple of them. You know, they've had some pastor that ran off with the secretary and you've got some leadership issues and more important and immorality. But here, I mean, all this stuff, they, they just had a whole bunch of stuff. More than I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of the stuff that are going on within the Calvaries that are problems. Somehow or another, they get across my desk. I've never seen anything like this. Corinth is by far way beyond anything. But here is Paul is coming towards the end of his letter. And as he's, as he's uh, closing it out, and, and what do you make of all of this? What do you do with all of this? I mean, you're looking there. Here you are a member of this church. Here you are having to go to this place all the time. And now he's writing to them. And after he lays out issue after issue after issue after issue after problem, after corruption, after immorality, after trial and immaturity and you can't eat meat. We've all tried, you've got nowhere. And now he just opens up this huge thing. And, and where you somebody now could just say, well, what do you want us to do? Do we just burn the building down and curse the ground and hope God opens it up and sucks, you know, everybody else but our own selves in it? Or, you know, what's the, what do we do? Why you've done this? Why you torn us apart like this? Well, here in this verse, as we, chapter 15, he says, be ye, be ye. He looks at them individually. Instead of you being down and discouraged and defeated and distracted about them, he turns to them and he says, be ye steadfast. He looks at them and he says, you want to know the way out of this? You want to know how every one of these things can be turned around? Every one of these things can be transformed. It's like he's looking at a corrupt city, a corrupt church, a corrupt everything. Are you, and he's like, he's looking, he's lays it all out. And he says, now, I'm sick and tired of this. Are you? And if they would say yes. He says, turning my stomach, turning your stomach, yes. You want to, you need, something need to be done? Yes, we agree. Paul says, then be ye steadfast. The word there, steadfast, it's a word, herodai. And or hedra, it's two different ways. And when you look at it, there's a couple of Greek scholars that are main ones that kind of have different opinions, but about the same one actually. One say that the word actually, it's a wrestling term. 
uh, uh, there, that what it means is that when somebody, that a wrestler, when he says, be ye steadfast, there, he's talking about a red wrestler's position. I don't know if any of you are wrestlers. I was never a serious wrestler. I did a little in high school. But one of the very first things that the wrestling coach teaches you in, in, in wrestling is, in a sense, to be steadfast. That's the word that one of them believes he's using here. And one of the things that you're taught is that you never stand upright. You never just, hey, you want to wrestle? Okay, I mean, somebody just come up and touch you in that forehead, down you go. You put one foot in front of another, another down. And, you, and, there, and then you, you, you're crouched, your, 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 your knees are never straight, they're bent, and your waist is not up and straight, it's bent. You're, everything is moving, and you're constantly shifting your weight back and forth. You're waiting for a blow to come from any direction to you. So when it is, you can quickly move into it, for it. You can meet it. So it doesn't push you, but you, with, you, you, you are steadfast, you are planted. And here Paul says that when you go to church, Go and plant it. Go in there as to who you are. That you, or a, the other translator, translator use it like a statue. It's like a reference to a marble statue. Something that is just planted. Something that is just solid as a statue uh, there. But be strong, be firm. Don't you, you know, be, this, none of this stuff, Paul says, should even alter your position, your, your, your theology your relationship with Jesus Christ. This should have nothing to do with who you are, your planted, your faith, your love, your trust, your surrender. It is negotiable. It is set. And then because of that now, when you come in, you're prepared for whatever it is that has to come there. Rather than just being blown away easy by another trial, another thing in your life, in your home, in your church, so many of us, we can come and have a real nice time here and, and great time, good fellowship. We go home and something happens with the wife or the kids. We walk in the door and, and we're not planted. We walk in the door and oh, I had a great time and somebody, you know, while you're gone, somebody broke something of yours that you loved, your golf club or whatever, you know, or something. And all of a sudden you're gone, you know, or something. You're just blown away. Instead, I mean, when you go home, Lord, I want to go home steadfast. I want to go home planted. I want to go to work planted. I don't want to go to the office thinking I'm going to walk in here to an unbelieving situation and just, hey, how y'all doing, you know, and just cruise through there where you got two worlds that ought to be clashing. The light ought to be shining in darkness. It ought to be something that's coming through. And here when, when Paul, there, he looks there and he says, be steadfast with your heart in your life, firmly, deeply planted in it, in your walk. Secondly, he turns to him, then he says, be steadfast and immovable. Now it's interesting there, uh, it, it means firm, fixed, stable, unmoved, and it's virtually the same word as steadfast, only it's a stronger expression. And the way that the Greek language is, is that when somebody uses a phrase and then they use it again, basically the same thing. It means almost to double down on something, to be intensely strong with it. When somebody says, be careful. Okay, be careful. But say, no, be very careful. But then they say, be very, very careful. It's like to add to the emphasis of the same concept. And hear what Paul is saying there when he says, be steadfast, you know, immovable. It means there a, a sustainability uh, and, uh, and uh, much in a continued steadfastness. In other words, not just stable for a moment, not just that position for a moment, but maintaining the position for the entire match, for the entire battle. Not just I'm going to go into the ring and try to start off with it this way, but every second that that while, while I'm in the ring. I'm not going to, you know, in a three-minute round of boxing and you go out there and be doing everything. And then whew, after, hey, that was two minutes. I really, what do you think of it, everybody? And all of a sudden, boom, you know. But it's there for the whole measure of it. You're given to it. And the issue as well, though, with it is that there's, it has a, another sense to it. In the sense of steadfast and movable, it's a prolonged, stabilized word is what it means. And essentially there, it means to be a movable under test. In other words, it's not just simply is it conceived or believed to be, to be un, uh, steadfast. Has it proven itself to be steadfast? My uh, uh, great-grandfather, 
uh, he was man uh, who was he was vice president of Southern Pacific Railroad. Actually, he was in charge of most of the railroad tracks later, late, late in Arizona, Nevada, and California. And his brother, a man named Wilbur. Fisk McClure, my great-grandfather's brother, was the chief engineer for the state of California at a time when uh, Boulder or Hoover Dam was built. And uh, if you know anything about, uh, it was first called Boulder Dam. And uh, it was considered when it was done, it was, it was the greatest engineering feat ever in the history of man. Uh, when it was done. There was a number of engineering firms called into it, and my great-grandfather's brother representing the state of California oversaw project. In fact, outside of Hoover Dam, there's this big boulder with his name on it, dedication to Wilbur Fish McClure. I got a picture of a little kid nearby, kind of proud of it. But at any rate, uh, here when this thing was built, because it was considered the greatest engineering feat, they had tried five dams previous uh, to this that were less uh, uh, engineering unless uh, uh, smaller dams, all five of them had broken, had failed. And uh, uh, here, President Hoover was the one that was responsible for setting aside the congressional money and the, I mean, the act of Congress and to go build this. And they wanted to name it Hoover Dam. He refused. He said, no, they've heard they called it Boulder Dam. And uh, he said, first of all, I don't want to, you can call it Hoover Dam later if you want, but I don't want it to be called Hoover Dam until it's proven to work. No, no president wants a broken dam built <laughs> named after him, you know, or something. So Hoover Dam and Boulder Dam are one and the same dam. The name was changed later. But when they built it, uh, uh, it was uh, one that it, it's some 726 feet high. It's 1,244 feet across. At the base of the dam, it's some 660 feet across. At the top of it, it's 45 feet thick at the top. It took four and a half years to build. 4.4 million uh, yards of concrete in construction, which gives enough concrete to build a freeway from one side of the United States to the other. More concrete ever in that than anything ever done previously in the history of man. It's been passed up by a dam in, in China since, but not, nowhere near the engineering that went into this. And But it's something there that as they built this dam, behind it is Lake Mead. And uh, Lake Mead, it took some six and a half years to fill. It's 589 feet deep at its deepest point. It's 247 square miles in size on the top. It's 110 miles long. But it's the largest man-made reservoir in the United States. But it is something that when they built this, they knew, it, it, they obviously, it was immovable. But the issue was, was it steadfast? And that is something they didn't know till the water rose. And so they literally, as they filled it, here, you know, they, 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 they wait till the water rises, 50 feet, 100 feet. They're watching it. They're, they've got all sorts of meters checking everything. Is it holding? How strong is it? Watching when it gets up to 150, 200 feet, 250 feet, 300, 350 feet. As they're letting it rise slowly, building this thing, wanting to make sure that this thing, that it was going to hold. When the issue was not what is steadfast, how, how much pressure could it hold? How much weight could it have behind? They'd never had any engineering statistics to know could the amount of pressure that this lake meet, 110 miles long, there, uh, the force of that all resting up against this dam, you know, coming behind it, would it blow it out as it had previous five dams before? Or was this engineered to hold it? Steadfast, was it immovable? And, uh, and that's the issue in our life. Anybody can be steadfast for a moment. But the issue of, of what Paul is looking there in somebody's life is somebody that determines, God, I want to be unmovable. I want to be a man that who I am in a year, and two, and five, and 10, and 15, and 20. That my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my friends, my neighbors, they look in somebody, they see somebody that, that was unmovable. Some convictions happened within their heart and their life that when the water rose, they stood. That when the pressure came on them, they expected it, they were prepared for it, they analyzed it, and with all of their heart, they cried out, and you strengthened me to stay. Those are decisions. You don't grow by osmosis. You don't grow just because you come in and sit down in church. You can have the greatest pastors, the greatest preachers. They had them. They had them. 
The issue wasn't what they heard. The issue was did they have convictions after it that says they can preach the greatest sermons, you know, for hours on end. The issue, nothing happens until I have a sense of conviction that says this is what I want for my life and this is not what's going to be around anymore. And until that happens, nothing happens. And Paul is looking after he lays out all this stuff, his closing comment. Now, what do you do about it? You say, who needs the church if this is, if this is religion? <laughs> I'm going to have something else. Or is it somebody says, I get it. I get it. I get it. And God, I want to be steadfast. I want to be Im immovable. But who I am is, is, is God to the core. You see, the, a relationship with God, it's mutual. All relationships are designed to be mutual. A marriage is to be mutual. Where there's two people, it takes two people in that marriage, that both of which look at the other one and said, forsaking all others, I pledge my life to you. That, other, that they both look at each other with all the other detractions or distractions there when one of them maybe has all the steadfast and immovability in the world, but the other doesn't, the marriage can fail. So also we're the bride of Christ. He looks there, I'll live for you, I'll die for you. I'll rise from the dead, I'll send to heaven, I'll write your name in the book of life, I'll blot out all your sins, I'll ever live to make intercession for you. I will present you faultless before God. I will come for you, bring you home to heaven, give you a new body, conform you to my image, share my heaven with you forever. I will do everything on my side. But I cannot do anything until you look and say, I get my side. I'll be steadfast. I'll be immovable. I know, I mean, on one end, Jesus in John 17, he says, Father, I pray not that thou would take them out of the world. See, so often in Corinth, you would almost want to just pray, God, just get rid of Corinth. Get rid of Venus. Get rid of all these, you know, Socrates and Plato and Pluto and whoever. Get them all out of here. They're messing with all of our lives. They're ruining our families. Get rid of this. We want to, and God, take away all these temptations, all these distractions. God says, no, I won't do that. Jesus, I pray not that I would take them out of the world. Jesus, I'll compete with anybody, anywhere, anytime, anyhow. You want Venus? There she is. You want this? You want that? You want money? You want power? You want those statues? You want any of those gods? You can have every one of them. I'm willing to compete right alongside, and at the end of the day, you want them, you may have them. You will have me because you want me. Because you have chose me above them. Not because I eliminated them. And we would, and, and here the Lord looks at us and all these things. He says, you, can have, you want cable TV? You want the, the X-rated stuff? You can have all of it you want. You want to mess around with the porn? You can have it. You want this stuff over here? You can have it. Whatever it is, have all of it. Because if one day we have each other, it's because you wanted me as much as I love you. What's the first and greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. After Jesus rose from the dead, what did he ask Peter? What did he want to know? Why did you blow it? What were you thinking? I told you you wouldn't do it. I knew you'd fail. I told you before they did. When are you going to learn to listen to me? That didn't, he didn't care about any of that. Peter, lovest thou me? Yes. Peter, lovest thou me? Yes. Peter, Lovest thou me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I know I love but you know that. I do. That's what he wants to know of all of us. It's not do we love him, but how do we love him in relationship to all the other things? How do you think my wife would feel if I came home tomorrow and she's doing a women's conference there? We came home and I said, you know, honey, I've been thinking I want you to pray for something for me. What's that? Can we just pray that God kills all the other women in the world? What? Yes, all the women. Why would, why would you want me to do that? Well, honey, there's just so many, and they're just so pretty. They're just beautiful. And I'm, I, I get attracted to them. And I just keep on thinking, wow. You know, but I, but I love you, honey. I really love you. But at the same time, they're there. And, I just, and, 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 they, and they get me away from really loving you the way I ought to love you. And so can't we just pray that God takes them all away so I can just really only love you? What do you think your answer would be? She'd say, you know something, instead of killing them, why don't we kill you? Uh, it's easier. <laughs> because you look at if you want any other one of them, you may have them all. Have them all. 
If I'm not the best thing that you want to pour your life into, then have it. Well, the same thing. God looks at us. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, lastly. Here he looks at him now and he says, if you're steadfast or movable now, serve him. Always abounding, just giving and giving and giving and giving. Here he looks at Corinth and he says, what it needs is people that are steadfast and are movable and they are just abounding and they can hardly wait to get and come and help fix it. They're in the work. You know, when they build Hoover Dam, in fact, if you went and, and you Google Lake Mead, I've done it. You Google Lake Mead, you will end up It'll show you all sorts of vacation packages, fishing, swimming, boating, water skiing, jet skis, house boating, virtually any form of entertainment. It's got to be all these vacation centers, these hotels, all these attractions for people to go to have a good time around this incredible lake mead built behind Hoover Dam. And yet the interesting thing is, that is not why they created Hoover Dam. It had nothing to do with entertainment. Because down at Hoover Dam, they wanted to create the most powerful electrical generation system in the world. I've been down, there's 10 acres at the bottom of it, 10 acres, and they've got these incredible turbines. And here are these generators there. What it is is they wanted the maximum amount when they build it, how much pressure can we put on? How, what is the maximum that we can actually put on this dam that the force of the water coming through is so powerful that it will turn these massive generators and that these 13 huge generators around there will be turned and turned and turned and they will generate enough power 56 percent of it goes to california by contract 25 goes to nevada and 19 percent goes to arizona they they built this thing not for pleasure they built it that at the end of it that all the places that cities that weren't even in existence yet would have light and power that all these dark areas around three states, it would generate juice and electricity for it. And here God looks there and, uh, and, and he says, remember your labor is not in vain, Paul says. You get steadfast, you get immovable, and you determine I am, you know, I, you know soon one life will have come and passed, only what's done for Christ to left. I'm in it for the hunt. I'm in it with everything in me. Sign me up. That's what Paul's wanting to hear. I'm, you know, and I want to always abounding. I want something to be generated through my life. And yes, I'll stand. And yes, I'll be steadfast and let the pressure come on me. Let the world want to, everything it wants to give to me, all the struggles, all the trials, all the problems in the church, that while there's some people that are looking at it and say, man, if this is church, you can have it. And somebody else is rolling up their sleeves and says, I'll take it. This is why I'm alive. This is why I exist. So that something can be generated by my life, by my Lord, by the time I see him face to face. He can look at me and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He can look at me and say, you got the memo. You knew why you were alive. You signed up. You stood. You cried out. You held your ground. And lives were changed. Light was generated. And here to have, think that that's what, that's what he wants to say to every one of us.